might feel a little awkward going from a song titled Jesus Loves Me to the book of Hosea, but turn with me to Hosea chapter 8. As a matter of fact, it's not as awkward as it might seem. It's only awkward if we associate love, the love of God, and disassociate it from the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, the true love of God is that he sent Jesus Christ to bear the punishment for our sins. And so the love of God is the alleviation of the wrath of God by the means of the judgment of God on Christ instead of on us. And so it's appropriate that we think about God's judgment because if you don't think about God's judgment and his justice, you cannot understand the love of God. It's one of the reasons why it's appropriate to be in a book like Hosea. Hosea is a book that is framed by the reality God loves his people Israel, but Israel continually goes after other things in other ways apart from God's ways, and yet God will pursue them. God will treat them like an adulterous bride and will go and rescue them from their sin. That does, mean, does not mean it applies to every individual of the nation of Israel. We know that many have died in judgment. They have died in their sins. But it means that God has an ultimate plan where he will go and rescue and draw back to himself those who will believe in him. So judgment this morning is where we will be in Hosea. As a matter of fact, Hosea 4 through about 10 is almost one long speech on judgment that is coming on the nation of Israel. Judgment or punishment might be one way to think about it. As you think about punishment, um, you can associate it with a legal system. Around the world, various legal systems have various means of punishment. If somebody is convicted of a crime, the criminal will be punished in a variety of ways. Probably the most common way in our society would be incarceration, as if somebody is convicted of a crime, they'll end up in jail or in prison. But there are other ways that punishment is doled out. Another way could be probation and monitoring and house arrest. That could be the restriction of somebody's movement uh, from their house during certain hours of the day. Sometimes convicted criminals are uh, slapped with uh, an electronic monitoring system and they're not allowed outside of a certain perimeter. Other forms of punishment that are given are fines. You may have gotten that when you parked in a place you weren't supposed to or going a little bit faster than you're supposed to and you have to pay a fine. That's a penalty that you owe to the government for breaking the government's laws. Could be restitution or punitive damages. If you commit a crime against somebody else, you may be required to compensate them for the loss that they have incurred as a result of the crime that you committed against them. You have to compensate them. Another punishment could be loss of licensure. It could be that if you are found um, with a DWI, you may lose your driving's license, driver's license. Or if you are a physician and you are convicted of malpractice, you may lose your medical license. There are physical punishment in certain nations, Singapore and Saudi Arabia, dole out punishments of flogging and caning for certain crimes. We know of the death penalty that would be used for particularly heinous and violent crimes. The cost of your crime is your life itself. It could be deportation or loss of citizenship. 
If you're a U.S. citizen, you commit an act of treason, you can lose your citizenship. Or if you are a non-citizen and you commit a crime, you can be deported. Whatever the punishment, legal systems, in order to act justly, need to give a punishment that fits the crime. It needs to be appropriate to the crime committed. You cannot have a punishment that is completely arbitrary and does not match the crime committed. This is justice. This is the right way it should be done. And so any of those punishment that we just listed out, they need to fit the crime that was committed. If you commit a crime and you are put in prison for 30 years, but it's really just a small, petty crime, it doesn't match the crime. In God's system, in God's legal system in the Old Testament, he, we find something called lex talionis. This is a law of retribution. And you would know it as eye for an eye. Leviticus chapter 24, 17 through 20 says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And the point of it is there is an appropriateness to the punishment. It may not sit well with you. You might not like the idea of eye for an eye, but the point at least is an appropriateness to the crime committed. There's a logical connection between crime and punishment. We'll see in the portion of Hosea that we're in this morning that Israel has committed crimes and God is punishing them. And there is an appropriateness to the punishment that God enacts upon his people. Hosea has laid out that the people of Israel have effectively abandoned their God from being their God, and so judgment is coming. That's not all that Hosea says. Hosea spent the first three chapters building the case that God is a God of love and will go and redeem his people, but he is also a God who executes judgment on the unrepentant. And so God has a plan of redemption, but we're in the thick of things here where we see God's justice and God's judgment. And what we will see is that Israel will have sought other things apart from God, and the things that they have sought apart from God will be taken from them, and that will be the punishment administered to them. And so this morning we're going to consider the fact of the punishment for crimes committed And then we're also going to consider the appropriateness of the judgment that is given for the crimes that were committed. We need to consider this because the judgment that comes upon Israel is really indicative of what was in their hearts. In the judgment, they lose something. And what they lose shows what was in their hearts in the first place that they wanted apart from God. And so the very nature of the judgment reveals something of the kind of sin that they have. And as we look at that, we need to be reflecting on our own hearts. What is it that draws us away from God to commit sin? And if that thing was taken away from us, that thing that we wanted, what would we be left with? We need to see that the very thing that was taken away from Israel in punishment was also the very thing that God had promised to give to his people when he was their God. We need to consider that carefully. You could just very simply understand this. Kid, 
sees his mom make a new batch of cookies. She takes that batch of cookies and says, Johnny, I will give you a cookie after dinner tonight. She takes those cookies, puts them in the cookie jar. Five minutes later, she sees that Johnny has crumbs all over his face and chocolate smeared all over his lips. He has taken a cookie that wasn't his. And so not only does he not get a cookie after dinner, but he doesn't get any more of those cookies that his mom had promised to give to him. It's a just punishment. It's fair. The punishment fits the crime. We'll find with Israel that they took things from God that he had promised to them anyway. And he was going to take that away from them as a just retribution for their sins. And so we'll think about the fact of punishment. We'll think about the appropriateness of the punishment for the crime. But we mustn't think about these topics without also thinking about Christ. And I want to think about Christ in this way. Take a few moments at the end and just think how Jesus Christ comes to give us all that we need. And so we don't need to look outside of him to get things that we want. We really need to come to him for joy and peace and righteousness. If we seek those kinds of things apart from him, we will find they are taken away from us. So let's think first about punishment and crime from Hosea chapter 8 through 10. There's no way we're going to go through every verse in these chapters, and so we'll just kind of hit some of the highlights that pull out the theme of these chapters. So let's first consider key verses about punishment in Hosea 8 through 10. Look with me at Hosea 8 verse 1. It says, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. The summary of this is that Israel has transgressed God's covenant. They have rebelled against his law. And so because of that, there's something that's going to happen. It says in verse 1, set a trumpet to your lips. That was the job of a watchman, to stand watch and see if an enemy was coming. And the point here is that there's a watchman on the walls surrounding Israel, and they see an enemy coming, and they're to blow the trumpet sound to let them know invasion is coming. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. There's going to be somebody who comes, a foreign nation ruled by a foreign king who is going to come and exercise dominion over Israel. And that was going to be the punishment. Israel had transgressed God's covenant, rebelled against his law, and so they were going to find themselves under the punishment of God, namely the rulership of another nation over them. Chapter 8, verse 13. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now... He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, for they shall return to Egypt. This doesn't get much clearer. God clearly says that he will remember the iniquity of his people and punish their sins. He knows what they have done. He knows they have broken his law, and he is going to remember that, and he is going to punish them for that. Chapter 9, verse 7 declares, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. 
Israel shall know it. Hosea speaks at a time where the punishment is beginning to drip into the land of Israel. He prophesied for probably about 40 years. He started during a time where there was a great amount of prosperity in Israel, where things looked good. There was material wealth. The harvest was good. Israel was winning wars and having victory in battles. But he also prophesied so long that he saw the decay of the nation reach a point where it began to crumple in on itself. They didn't have any kings that could sustain the nation. And he saw foreign invaders come and wreak havoc on the land. And so he says, in a contemporary way, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. He saw it happen. Israel saw it happen. The judgment was there as invaders invaded the land. Chapter 9, verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Chapter 10, verse 4. They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. It's inevitable that judgment comes, and it's going to be like poisonous plants in the very place that you want to plow and reap a good harvest. Judgment is there. The judgment is undeniable. It is going to happen. It is happening. It's just a fact. That's where we start, just understanding it's a fact. If you commit a crime, there is punishment. There is judgment. It comes. But as Hosea lays this out, he doesn't just content himself with letting the people know that judgment is coming. He explains the kind of judgment that God gives. And as we said before, the judgment that God gives is just. It fits the crime. The the punishment is so fitting that it is compared to sowing and reaping. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. This is a description of what Israel is like. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. This is the sowing and reaping principle. We experience this all the time. If you sow an apple tree, what do you get? And you sow an apple seed, you get an apple tree. Uh, Cart before the horse moment. You got to get it right. You sow the seed, and then from that you get the plant. That's what God is saying. Israel has sowed to the wind. That basically means they have sought vain things. They've sought uh, gods that have no substance, that can't do anything. It's like they've planted wind in the ground. And what are they going to get from that? Well, they get a whirlwind, destruction. It fits. They sow to the wind. They sow to this this nothingness, but it, it reaps from it a whirlwind. You sow abandonment of God, and you reap being abandoned by God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 gives us the same principle. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This principle is, is really plain because God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. God will not let it be that someone can go through their life unrepentantly sowing sin and then think that they will reap eternal life. 
God isn't mocked. What you sow, you will reap. That's the principle. And so his punishment is just. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You cannot expect a nation or a culture to just perpetually sow iniquity, sow sin after sin after sin after sin, and not see the infiltration of that into the culture and society itself. And so they will reap injustice, where the rich rule over the poor, where the oppressed can never get a leg up. It is going to happen. When you sow and sow and sow sin, you're going to reap injustice. It just happens. It's cause and effect. It's sowing and reaping. So this is the case for Israel. This was the case where the wealthy had lifted themselves up. They had gotten themselves rich off of the, the, the manipulation of the poor, and God was not going to tolerate that in the land. He had regulations for the way the people were to be treated, and eventually the whole nation was going to crumble. There were unjust weights and measures. There was lying. There was deception in the courtroom. There was protection of one's own interests. There was fraud. There was lying and deception all over the place. And if you keep sowing those things, you're going to reap injustice. So God's judgment will fit the crime. That's the principle. There's going to be some samplings in this text about the way that you reap what you sow. We'll see the sins, and then we'll see the punishment for their sins. So go back to chapter 8, verse 1, text we already looked at. Set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because, that's the key word, they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. A covenant in Old Testament times would have been uh, basically a contract of a relationship. It would have said between a king and his people that the king would protect the people and the people would submit to their king. And so the people would be vassals of the king and the king would look over the people as long as the people do what the king says. That was the way it worked. It was basically a contract. And this was the way it would work just across the world. The people of Israel understood that they were to be a covenant people to their God. They were to live under contract to him. They're obligated to live according to his ways. But they transgressed his covenant. They rebelled against his law. They basically said, we don't want God as king any longer. Any longer. And if that's the case, then what's going to happen? What's the judgment? If they violate the covenant where God is to be their king and he their people, and they say, we don't want this anymore, then the natural consequences of that is they no longer have God as their king, and one like a vulture will come over the house of the Lord. Oh, they'll have a king. They'll have somebody who rules over them, but it's not going to be God in the sense of giving justice and righteousness and goodness and peace and prosperity. It is somebody who's going to exact, enact slavery upon the people, and they will be stripped out of their land and experience all of the horrors of exile. Chapter 8, verse 
says, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Shows that the people had treated their relationship with God as a mixture of pagan worship and of Yahweh worship. And because of that, they themselves just perpetuate the sin. All of their sin keeps coming. Back in chapter 8, verse 3, says, Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. When you say you don't want the good from God anymore, then you are only going to experience evil. You will not any longer know the goodness of the Lord. You will have an enemy chasing you. It says in 8 verse 4, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. This text shows us that Israel made their own kings and they made their own gods. And because they did that, they lost God as their good king and they had fake gods instead of the real God. The judgment fit the crime. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you recall, that's the chapter where David was anointed as king. And you remember Samuel went to David's family and thought, surely this is the king. And God said, no. And Samuel looked down the line, saw another strapping young man, said, surely this is the king. God said, no. It wasn't until he came to David that David was selected king because God looks at the heart. Israel, however, was having kings appointed and kings set up by assassination, by strength and military show. They were setting up their own kings. They rejected God's means of establishing kings, and they chose their own way. And as a result, they were going to have kings of their own way. They were going to experience the very kind of reaping of what they had sown. In chapter 10, verse 15, the ultimate consequence of this, Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. They had assassinated king after king after king, and finally it was just going to be done. They don't have any more Israelite kings, and they would be under the vassalage of another king. Chapter 8, verse 10. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. The people of Israel had gone after other nations to find protection. When they found themselves in trouble, they would go after other nations stronger and bigger than they were, and they'd say, we will, we will pay you some money if you give us your defense. And the people would say, of course, yeah, we'll, we'll defend you if you pay us. But what happens is the people of Israel are soon going to writhe under the tribute because that nation is going to just ask for more and more and more and soon they will find that the borrower is slave to the lender and they cannot get out from under the tribute that they had put themselves under and they will reap what they have sown. Chapter 9, verse 1 declares, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. 
Israel had considered that the blessings that they had were the result of their pagan worship. They soaked in the gods of the nations around them, and they began to worship them. And they would worship them, and then they'd have a good harvest. And they would give praise to their fake god for the harvest that they had received. And so they would go after these other gods, effectively committing spiritual adultery, and they would relish in their celebration of a good harvest. Now God tells them, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. Verse 2, Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. The consequence of their sin is that they're going to have the harvests taken away from them. They're going to have the land taken away from them. They're going to be put in another nation, and they will experience the judgment that fits their crime. Chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree. In its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Israel had so enslaved themselves to other gods that they served a god named Baal. And Baal was the fertility god. And so they would take any kind of Harvest and any kind of procreation is being credited to Baal. And so anytime they had children, they would think that was the favor of the fertility god Baal. And now, because they had given credit to the fake god, God was going to take away the very blessing itself. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. They were going to be bereaved of their children. Their wombs would dry up, and they would no longer have that blessing of a multitude of people. Judgment fit the crime. That's the whole idea. God was not enacting punishment on the people that were not fitting with what they had done. So many people often think that the judgment that God gives of eternal destruction is totally inappropriate for the crimes that we commit. And you can think about that theme for a bit, but what I want you to walk away from Hosea understanding is that God, when he administers judgment, is not doing it ignorant of the kinds of sins that were committed. And so he knows exactly the right punishment to give for the sins that have been committed. He's not unjust. He is not unfair. You will not be able to stand before God and say, God, I don't deserve this. That is not the way God works. If we were to summarize the sins of Israel, you could break them down into maybe five categories and we could even move on from there, but they could be summarized this way. Transgressing the covenant, setting up their own kings, idolatry, seeking help from foreign powers, and erecting sinful altars that mixed Yahweh worship with idolatrous worship. Now, Israel did those things, and you think, well, you know, I don't erect altars. I don't have idols in my house. I don't set up my own king. Uh, I haven't transgressed the Mosaic Covenant, and you, in one sense, haven't. 
But there are principles here. Israel's heart is the same as ours. There's no temptation that has come upon you that's not common to man. We all share the same temptations. So the same temptations that came to Israel, the same that come to us. And if we were to principalize these things, we can see that there are some principles of what they were doing. When it says that they transgressed the covenant, you could kind of summarize that principle as sin is desiring your own way instead of God's way. Sin is desiring your own way instead of God's way. As you go through your days, do you first think, what is God's way in this matter? What would God's will be? What does God desire? What has he revealed in his word about what I should do and how I should live? Or do you think first, before anything else, of what do I want? What do I desire? What am I after? That effectively is lawlessness. And that's what John summarizes sin as. In 1 John 3, 4, he says, sin is lawlessness. And we often think of lawlessness as chaos, as anarchy, as just kind of this uh, no-government um, free-for-all. And you're exactly right. That's what happens. Oh, we may live under the government structures of this world, but so many people in this world live in total anarchy. It's total chaos. It's everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And you consider yourself to be a good governor of your life. And so you follow your own dictates. That's the heart of sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's rejecting God's ways. Secondly, sin is wanting to take into your own hands care and protection of yourself by means of the things that you can see with your eyes. Israel wanted to set up their own kings that would provide protection for their nation. They were tired of waiting on God for deliverance. They were tired of following God in his ways, tired of seeing him come through at the last moment. And so they would take things in their own hands, erect their own kings, establish their own protection. They would build bigger walls with bigger military forces, bigger catapults, more arrows, more warriors. They would take censuses to know how many people they could fight. And they would just put all of their faith into their horses and their chariots and their kings rather than in their God. It's so easy to trust things. It's so easy to evaluate your life on the basis of how well your car is working, how good your mortgage payments are, how good your health insurance is, how good your retirement funds are. And we put our trust in those things all the time. Not to say we shouldn't consider our finances and take care of our car and pay our mortgage payments, but we think our life is good when we've got all of our ducks in a row and we set up our own kings and our own ways of doing things. And we forget that ultimately our trust is in God above. Anything not done in faith is sin, according to Romans. Our whole life is to be lived in dependence on the Lord. Sin, the third principle that we take away from this is sin is probably most atrocious when we mix it into our worship. And that's what Israel had done. 
They made altars for sinning. They multiplied altars for sinning. Oh, they had lots of religion. They built altars on all of the high places. They made lots of sacrifices. And they may have even called upon the name of the Lord. They would have thought that their worship was rising as a pleasing aroma to their God. But the fact of the matter was they were appointing their own kings, they were disregarding his law, and they are also going after other gods along with Yahweh and mixing it together and calling it worship. And God says, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. We might sing louder than others, might look more sincere than others, but if we don't know God, if we don't trust God, if we don't come humbly before him acknowledging our sin, then our worship is spurned by God. In chapter 8, verse 2, it says, To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. They would cry out to their God, We know you, God. We are good with you. We know who you are. We know your covenant. We know your ways. We know you. But look up at 714. They do not cry to me from the heart. And look over at 8.14. According to God, Israel has forgotten his maker. It may be that you claim to know God. You think we know him, we say we know him, but the proof of knowing him is demonstrated in a life of trust and dependence on him and in the fruit that you bear for him. Our lives is what proves the matter Do you know him well enough to know what he loves and what he hates? Do you know him well enough to know what he commands of you? Do you know him well enough that you know his son? Do you know him well enough to know his spirit? Do you know him well enough to know his words? Do you know him well enough to know his grace? Do you know him well enough to know his love? You know him well enough to know his plan and his will. You can't just say you know God and then know nothing about him. And that's what Israel demonstrated. They said that they knew God, but their lives were so far from him that they demonstrated they have no clue who this God is. And sadly, so many so-called Christians say, yeah, we know God. Yeah, we know Jesus. And they don't know the first thing about God. They don't know the first thing about Jesus. They approve things that God hates and they condemn things that God loves. They live their life like the world and have no demonstrable fruit in their hearts. We can't say that we know God when you don't know him. And so the worst kind of sin is when sin infiltrates our worship. Now that's not to say that you come on Sunday mornings feeling in your heart the weight of your own guilt and you can't worship him. No, that's the appropriate time to worship him because you look to Jesus Christ, you look to the one who came to take away the sins of the world and you confess your guilt before God and you worship him as the God who forgives sinners. It's an appropriate time to worship. It's when you don't know that you are carrying your sin in your life. 
It's when you live your life however you want and then you come to worship thinking that you're good with God and you know him. When as a matter of fact, you haven't been convicted of the first thing in your life. Oh, there's consequences to our sin. If you go your own way, apart from God, without repenting, then you will end up reaping an eternity without him. If you take protection into your own hands, then all you have is your own protection. If you give false worship, then you will find you have false atonement and you have no access to God. There's a better way here. The best way, the better way is in Christ. In the judgment that we've seen that came upon Israel, they lost everything. They lost land, they lost children, they lost their home, they lost food, they lost protection. These were taken away because they sought these things from outside of God. They sought it from their own hands or they sought it from idolatrous worship. But consider, in Ephesians 1.3, it's described for us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's something interesting about Israel's sin is they kept on trying to get things that God had already promised to them. God already promised them the land. He promised them abundant harvests. He promised them a multitude of children. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey and their wine vats just bursting with wine. He promised them kind of a a life where the, the reaper would overtake the sower because the crops are coming up so fast. It was going to be good. He promised them blessing. And they forsook God and tried to get the blessing of their own means. What I want you to know, brothers and sisters, is God is not a God who is stingy in the blessing category. I'm not talking that he's immediately going to lavish you with a million-dollar check and a multi-million-dollar home and all of that kind of stuff. That's not it. The point is that every spiritual blessing has been given to you in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. It's all there for you. And so you do not need to go after the things of this world to try to get the very blessings that God is going to give you anyway. Don't go the way of Israel. We get to reap what Christ has sown. Do you want protection? Well, don't seek it from those who can only protect you with human arms. Seek it from the one who has power to save. Do you want hope? Don't look for it in the newspapers or in the stock market or books and professors. Look to the one who can keep his word. Do you want joy? Well, don't go looking for the manufactured, processed, assembly line of media joy that our culture gives to us. Go after the one who came that his joy might be in you. Reap what Christ has sown for you. Israel rejected the law and righteousness, but we find righteousness in Christ Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled them so much that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus has the title, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We go to Christ for our righteousness. We go looking for him exclusively. Don't look to your works. Don't look to your self-righteousness. Don't look to the things that you can do in this world to get you righteousness. Look to Christ. Reap what he has sown. We taste of righteousness through Christ. Do you want protection? Look to Christ for protection as you seek to do his will in this world. The Apostle Paul, he just gave himself to the mission of Jesus Christ and he found himself in prison. He found himself under the threat of death. In Acts 23, verse 11, it says, The following night, this is while Paul is in prison, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified about, to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. There the Apostle Paul basically gave himself to the wolves of this world, and yet he had the good shepherd at his side. Jesus Christ promises you no less. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you want protection? Give yourself to the ultimate task that Christ has given the church, the Great Commission. And you know what you'll find? Jesus is with you always to the very end of the age. You need no human protectors. You don't need to take things into your own hands. You've got Jesus Christ by your side until he comes back or calls you home. Do you want provision? Do you want to be free from worry and fear about all the things that you need? Well, listen to Christ. Jesus Christ is our provider and calls us to a worry-free life because of the provision of God. Matthew six twenty-five. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not, this, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus promises us we have a Father who takes care of you. He knows your needs, and he knows that you're more valuable than the birds and the flowers. Do not be anxious, Jesus says. What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Oh, we need to remember that we have God on our side. Trust him. Not only that, but Jesus himself describes himself in John 10 as the good shepherd. Israel had laid up wall upon wall to protect themselves from the enemy. And God in a moment can prove that he is more effective defense against your enemies than the most fortified walls. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Those are the false gods that Israel had gone after. They cared nothing for the sheep of Israel. But you put your trust in the good shepherd and Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Israel sought to combine its sinful worship with Yahweh worship, but we look to Christ. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Oh, when you come with false worship, you're in some way trying to impress God. But Christ calls us to come to him, and he brings us to God. Punishment fits the crime. And as you look at the punishment that Israel experienced, you get a sense of what they're longing for, what they're after. But we need to put our trust in God because he provides all those things. You don't need to try to gain them by sinful means. God gives them to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's trust him. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to protect us, rescue us from our very own sin. You've given him as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for us. Father, help us not to seek those blessings apart from Christ. Lord, it's so easy to be tempted to go after things that we can see or feel or touch. Help us to take Christ's promises at faith's value, to listen to him, to believe him, God, keep us from straying, keep us from going after the things of this world. Keep us holy unto you, Lord. Father, thank you for the example that you give us in Hosea. I pray that we continue to learn from this book. You teach us and instruct us in our hearts, and we would listen, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.